fellow listeners, and welcome back to Black in Boston and Beyond, a podcast of the Trotter Institute at UMass Boston. I'm Hedy V. Williams, your host. Today on Black in Boston and Beyond, we have Dr. Tajay Beulah Howard, who will discuss the legacy of Howard Thurman and his relationship with Martin Luther King in Boston. Welcome to the show, Professor. Thank you, Hetty. It is a pleasure and an honor to be here. Yes, thank you so much for taking out some time in your busy day to talk about the long Black freedom struggle, yeah. its connection to Boston, Howard Thurman, MLK, And I know you've written a lot about this subject matter and most recently in Black Perspectives Roundtable on the subject matter. So I want to shout out to everybody to read really one of the best roundtables that was published of late on the blog. I will also leave the link to that roundtable so everybody can read it. But first, we're going to discuss the teaching and research background. Tajay has like very interesting approach to teaching and writing. And we want to hear a little bit about that first before we focus on our topic at hand. So Tajay, tell us a little bit about your teaching and research interests. Absolutely. So very broadly, I teach the history of Christianity in the U.S. My specific interest in that very broad field is 19th and 20th century African-American religious history. My primary research right now involves Black evangelicals and their use of Black power culture to evangelize to Black communities. I'm also very much a passion project of mine for maybe 15 years now has been on Reverend Vernon Johns and his influence on Dexter Avenue Baptist Church immediately before King. And another project that ties into today's topic is looking at African-Americans and mysticism and basically looking at at Thurman and his kind of parallel religious experience to John Coltrane and his wife, Alice Coltrane. So those are some of the projects that I'm working on. And I will say, because you also asked me my favorite class to teach, my favorite class to teach is the Howard Thurman class. And my Martin Luther King class, basically the Howard Thurman class, actually both classes give me the opportunity to not only present these men in their intellectual and spiritual and theological ideas, but it's amazing to me how many students I have at the graduate level who just don't know American history. And so being able to use their lives as a lens to look at certain parts of of U.S. history has always been fascinating. But the Thurman class, because in addition to being a historian, I'm also a spiritual companion. We get to do a lot of really cool spiritual work. And I think that that's important for students to be able to think about who they are outside of their roles that they play in society and who they are beyond who they are as a student. So thinking about their interior lives and how that type of intentional work can actually be beneficial to people as they do their work. Yes. I want us to talk a little about, and and this is as much as you are comfortable talking about Mm -hmm. your life in academia and your decision to sort of move away from more traditional academic work and life. And another thing I like because many students listen to our show, grad mm-hmm. students in particular, and the choices they have, right? You go get a PhD, you're told, okay, what are you going to do? Ah, oh, you have to teach. But right. the 
alternative. There are alternatives to remaining within academia, which I feel is a very hostile space right now, mm-hmm. regardless of what campus you're on post COVID. Mm-hmm. If we can say that right, endemic COVID mm-hmm. times, I suppose we can say it's become a very brutal space. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so whatever you're, you're willing to divulge here. Because, <laughs> Hetty, you know a lot. Right now, like, I just spent the last nine years of my life committed to a Methodist seminary here in Ohio based. And I started out there as an adjunct. I moved from an adjunct to administrative faculty, meaning I did some partnership work with them in addition to having, you know, a minor teaching load. And then I went from administrative faculty to the executive faculty. And I made the decision this year that pre-tenure wanted to leave the process. It's around the time that I would be going on my sabbatical, (laughs) but I just decided to opt out altogether, largely because one, and most importantly, I want to rest and I want to live at my own pace. I think I'm very Thurman-like in that regard. I want to take my time. I do not think that I am leaving the academy permanently, but I do think I need an opportunity to rest and reset. I love teaching. I love being in the classroom, but I also love writing. And I think it's helpful in the political climate that we have right now that particularly those of us who study history, if we can find other ways of communicating the past to people in ways that is accessible to them kind of takes what we do in the academy and make it available to communities via, you know, podcasts, via blogs. I know a lot of people, I think, yeah, people are still reading blogs, but blogs, podcasts, but finding other ways to talk about history in a ways that rescues it from becoming particularly African-American history, that we don't forget, we don't lose these narratives because of politics, that we keep telling the truth of our country. And I'd like to do that. I'm partnering with a few history organizations here in Ohio, specifically a few museums about how we do some different work and how we how we teach people how to read archives, how to use archives, how to do historical work. And so the Academy has its place. And I think that it's very important that there are Black and Brown people of color who are in institutions who are teaching, but it could be a bit of a grind. So taking some time off to reflect and regroup and then go back is, is, is what I'm doing now. So I'll stop there. Well, I think it's good to know for grad students listening to the show that there are alternatives to working either within it or even within the Academy. If you decide, Hey, I'd rather be an administrator or absolutely. Absolutely. Some other dimension. Yeah. You know, yeah. working with students, intercultural center. Right. And different, you know, could still teach, but maybe not be a full time professor. Right. And or even teach part time and, and have an alternative career outside of the academy. There there are a lot of options. Yes. Yes. I didn't I didn't talk too much about the spiritual direction practice because I want to keep this history focused, but I will say that Thurman is very important to to the work that I do as a spiritual co- guide and companion. That basically means for you know people who are not familiar with that term, is I basically sit with people for an hour or 75 minutes, and I encourage them to think about who they are as human beings and what their life journey has been and how can they intervene in the obstacles that are presented to them 
largely a lot of our answers come from inside of us, but we those answers are drowned out by religion. They're drowned out by family expectations, preacher, pastor expectations. But like Thurman, I believe that we have an inner altar. We have an inner being that is also very important and intuitive and good and useful for helping us to figure out how to live our lives. I think that's very important now, especially in this COVID reality we're still living. Yeah. People have undergone a sort of spiritual crisis and we we were already in epistemological Mm -hmm. crisis as a society. And there are very many reasons for that, right? The advent of technology. Now we're faced with AI and chatbots. What do we do? Mm -hmm. Is anybody reading? Is anybody thinking? What is truth? And I think we can look to somebody like Thurman or King to help guide us through this, I think, a calamity that is happening, a spiritual calamity, if that phrase makes sense, but definitely an epistemological crisis, crisis of knowing, knowledge, truth. So I think that's a very important perspective to link to the larger impact of Thurman. Yeah. American religious thought, social justice, inequality, and so on. Yeah. So let's let's turn to our questions. I mean, one is why study history? Obviously, <laughs> you're a historian of I would say American thought, religion, and spirituality. Yeah. Give me a new title. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a good way of thinking about, but also a public intellectual. I think what you're talking about is public intellectual and your kind of love of being in those public spaces and talking about ideas. Yeah, which is really interesting because when I looked at this question, why study history? And two reasons. One, because I want to learn more about the ideas that have shaped and defined not only our society, but our institutions and the way that we live and orchestrate our lives. History plays a role in all of that, but also I should say it's a third reason. So the second reason would be to, to learn how to implement those ideas or refine them to our contemporary moment. And then finally, one of the first quotes that I read from Carter G. Woodson, he basically said something to the extent of like those who have no record of what their forebears have accomplished, lose the inspiration, which comes from the teaching of biography and history. And that has really like defined my project. My historical project has always been looking at people's lives. What ideas did they have? How did they implement them? And in this country, you know, particularly I'm looking at those ideas that help us to live more freely, that advocate for equality and for justice. And so I'm very interested in how people implement it and how they execute it, how they organized organize those ideas and and move people. One of the things that I love about studying the Montgomery bus boycott, for example, is that church cooks primarily funded that particular movement. And that, that sticks out with me because my grandmother was a church cook for 50 years. And I know what it means, the authority that church cook, church cooks have, particularly in the black church. They're just amazing people to watch, to tell the story of not only just the church, but also the community. So that's why I do history. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about, I just, the fish fry, right? That yes. Black church fish fry. Mm-hmm. I just participated in one of those recently, a couple of weeks ago, wherein uh, my sister and I have a friend who their church is trying to raise money. So he's like, oh, they're having a fish, fish fry. Mm-hmm. You know, you can get fish or chicken and for however much money. And the history of the idea of the, the, the black church fish fry is something somebody needs to do it. Yeah. 
you know, yeah. because we talk about the ladies' auxiliaries mm-hmm. and, and all of the different work that women did in their church groups, but the focus on something like food, right? right. Nourishment right. of the body and spirit right. is would make, I think, really a great, maybe a great monograph. Yeah. Really. And the stories, like, you know, you know, when there's food, there's stories. <laughs> sure. And so that that's also, you know, a big role in that as well. So let's turn to our subject at hand yes. and talk about Howard Thurman, Martin Luther King and their connections to Boston. Yeah. Give us a short, give us a brief description of, of Howard Thurman, but also what he means to you beyond the basic details. Again, there's some undergraduates yeah. also listening to our show. So they may not have ever heard of him. We Everybody knows Martin Luther King. But, right, right. You know, Thurman gets a little overshadowed. A there. little, just a tad bit. But Thurman, the best way to describe him is this. He was a mystic, meaning that he was someone who interpreted his relationship with the spirit. And, and I want to be very clear that Thurman was someone who was also interfaith, intercultural and interspiritual, meaning that when he referred to God, he may have been referring to the Christian God as we understand Christianity, but he also understood that there were other ways and other beings that also held resonance for him. But he saw himself as being able to interpret his his spiritual experience as having authority. And that's what I mean when I say mystic. He was a pioneer of eco-spirituality. So when he communed with trees, like his best friend as a kid was a tree that he talked to. And so he was, you know, would be someone who would really have a, uh, a great attention to care of the earth. He was an educator, a preacher, a pastor. He was born at the turn of the 20th century. Various dates are given for his birthday. I've been sticking with November 18th, 1899. He was born in Daytona Beach or outside of Daytona Beach, Florida, heavily influenced by the theology and spirituality of his maternal grandmother, who was a former slave, who taught him that his blackness was honored by God and by the man that he knew as his father. A recent biographer has shown evidence that the man that Thurman presented as his father in his autobiography was actually his stepfather, but Thurman called him father. And he was very much impressed by Saul Thurman's relationship with nature. He saw nature as a means of of connecting with with the spirit. And I will also say that he was a devoted husband, a devoted father and son. And finally, he was a highly prolific writer and author. So that's Howard Thurman in a nutshell. So tell me about how a lot of the words that you mentioned, for instance, interfaith and how he understood the divine. Yeah. Get into how he was forward thinking more than most of his day. Yeah. So when Thurman took his first appointment, his first pastoral appointment in the early 1930s, he was here in Ohio at Oberlin and he pastored a little church there that was attended by Oberlin college students. And Thurman decided, even though he was ordained as a Baptist, he decided very early on in his ministry that he was going to infuse his worship services with religious experimentation. So he was going to combine elements of Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam 
other, you know, different rituals and practices into his services. And at the end of one service during his first year, a young student from China approached him and told him like, you know, he was going home for the summer, but he wanted Thurman to know that he was so grateful because he, you know, came to the church, even though he wasn't Baptist, but he felt that when he was there, that he could experience God the way he understood God, because Thurman was so inclusive of different rituals and of different teachings, and he would include them in his services. So forward thinking in terms of thinking about Thurman was always thinking about how to break down those barriers that separated human beings from one another. And also one of my questions, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but one of my questions is about, we, we know so much about Martin Luther King's visit, you know, to, you know, just as a global or international, I guess we could really look at it that way. Yeah. But it's connection to Asia and particularly India and the Gandhi's thought. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't come there on his own. He comes to that through Thurman. Would that be well valid or fair listen, to say? I would say the entire nonviolence movement is in the U.S. comes to us because Howard Thurman went to India in 1936. He, his wife, and young Methodist couple, their their names escape me right now, but it was a four-person delegation and they were part they were sponsored by the student Christian movement in India. Basically, this group of students wanted to be able to draw parallels between the oppression of blacks in the US and their unique struggles as as Indians. And they go over the entire delegation, they participate in at least 135 lectures in 50 cities. And one of the last stops they make is to go and see Gandhi. And there is a three-hour conversation that is available in, in Thurman's papers that where, where Thurman starts. One, let me rewind. Thurman is challenged on every turn as to why he is a Christian when the Christian church in the U.S. is so segregated. So he has to, you know, basically, you know, make sure that he's not being representative of a religion that that ultimately dehumanizes him. So he ha- he's forced to think about that question, but he's also very much fascinated by Gandhi's teaching on ahisma, which is nonviolence or non-injury. And it's the idea that that your love for for your fellow man can be so overwhelming in your heart that it could help you to have the power to combat hate and violence. And so so it's Thurman who comes back. And at the time he's a part of this delegation, he was teaching at Howard at the time. And so he comes back and he starts talking about nonviolence on Howard's campus. And who is there? James Farmer is, is at Howard at that time. Polly Murray yeah. is at Howard at that time. And so they're hearing Thurman talk about this in chapel services. And they're going out and doing some of the first lunch counter movements where they're going in and they're forcing uh, their way into segregated busing systems and lunch counters and shopping. So it's, it's really Thurman that brings that, that that idea to Howard and it spreads through the student activists that he 
played a significant role in their lives and in their in their activism. So you also mentioned his wife. Yes. Can we talk a little bit about her, Sue Bailey Thurman? Sue Bailey Thurman is, I mean, a a co-laborer <laughs> with her husband. I mean, she also, in her work, she's seeking to advance interracial, intercultural, and international understanding, not only through education, but also through the, the YWCA, that student movement. But she was also, Hetty, she was also a historian and the founder of the first Black Museum of History in Boston. She was also founder and editor of the publishing arm of the National Council of Negro Woman, Women. And she was also their first archivist. So all of her work, all of her, her writing, her organizing, all had this kind of shared mission with, with her husband. Even when they went out to San Francisco and, and Thurman pastored the, the Church for the Fellowship of All People, it was Sue Bailey Thurman who organized the church to go to different international conferences in an effort to, to not only just promote peace and unity, but also justice. So she was she is actually very much deserving of her own scholarly attention because she was very much, for lack of a better terminology, she was a beast <laughs> in her own right. Yeah, I was going to. You know, my next question would have been, what do we know about her in terms of secondary source literature, articles? And I can share all this information in the show notes, too. Yeah. About her. Has Is there a biography of her I've, or anything out there yet? The best treatment of Mrs. Thurman right now is found in in work from uh, on, on Thurman. Okay. Yeah. So what I would want to do is also give everybody some information about maybe how to locate some of this work. Also, I mean, Boston University Archives, I mean, they have they have they have all of Thurman's papers. And I would imagine that whatever papers she may have had would also be there. Yeah, I find it interesting mm-hmm. when it comes to these prominent men that we mm-hmm. we always talk about. Oftentimes the their wives who were co-laborers and leaders and even beyond, right? And had their own, obviously had their own ideas mm-hmm. and writings that many times the women do not have a collection of papers or their own papers might be embedded or buried within right. the collections of the particular, quote unquote, more prominent men, right? Right, right. And I'm finding that with somebody like when we look at Brown versus Board and the various women involved mm-hmm. there, mm-hmm. they get overshadowed by the men. Right. And you know, Mamie Phipps Clark, right, right is, is one of those, right? right? Kenneth Clark has papers everywhere. Right. So you really have to burrow down into those papers to find Mamie, who was a scholar in her own right. Right, right. The one thing I will say that I really appreciate about, you know, what I've been able to read and study about the Thurman marriage is that Howard, Howard Thurman was always very clear that his wife was a co-laborer with him. And because I know that the reason why Boston has his papers is because of her work, I would imagine that, you know, she she would have turned over, you know, her materials as well in right. Boston. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure there's work at the dissertation level. Right. About her. There has there should to be. be. There should of- be. Can't say that right. I've looked recently, but I mean, she is just phenomenal in, in her own way. And the argument you're making about Thurman laying the really the intellectual foundation of the nonviolent resistance movement in America, that's, I think, 
obviously there are great books out there about him, but I think that has been something. So King has overshadowed him as kind of the architect right? in uh, Farmer too, because right. I think Farmer obviously seen as one of those architects. Right. And there are many books about both of them, countless mm-hmm. books. Mm-hmm. But I think scholars of American religion are starting to, and it's recent. I don't think it's something that's happened over 30, 40 years, with, such as with the literature on Farmer and King. I think this is more recent. With Thurman? Oh, absolutely. So here's the thing yes. with Thurman. In the last 10 years, his collection of papers, you can buy them on Amazon right now. Like his papers are available on Amazon. And and because those papers have become so public, there has been in the last five years, an uptick in Thurman interest. And it was actually Peter Eisenstadt's work that really put me on to the way that the black press perceived of Thurman's trip to India so they really thought that when Thurman was coming back, um, there's a Peter Canna, 1942, Pittsburgh Courier, he's writing, and he's basically like naming Thurman as like the Moses of Black America. And, hmm. you know, Thurman really, in some ways, and I'm using quotation marks here, let Black America down because he doesn't come back to lead a social movement. He comes back to lead a spiritual movement. Something I didn't say about his time in India, he's really wrestling with that question of, okay, the world sees Christianity in America as racist, as segregationist, but he's also seeing the religion of his grandmother and the religion of his father in this religion. And so he has this mystical experience while he's in India where he's literally arrested by the spirit And basically starting to think about how do I use religious experience to break down racism and segregation and other social barriers? And it's also that experience also is was the motivating force behind his most well-known book, Jesus and the Disinherited, which is, you know, a book that heavily influenced King. And we can talk about that in a minute. But, you know, Thurman, you know, he so in terms of giving him credit thinking about like this, this uptick in interest in him, I think what we're starting to think about is how we started a little bit ago is that if, if there's no spiritual sucker for a person's life, then, then it's kind of hard for them to live fully. And I think Thurman, that's what he, that's, you know, something else that he brought back was there should be a spiritual component to what we're doing. We shouldn't just be out in the streets. We should also be nourishing ourselves spiritually. I think you make I think these two words, mystic and spiritualist, and I don't know the answer to this question. I want to ask you, okay. was he perceived? Mm-hmm. I mean, somebody like King coming out of, you know, uh, Sweet Auburn and the black elite, right? Gives him a certain set of, uh, I guess, a pedigree to say, hey, here's our leader. You know, look at his credentials, including his his educational background not really seen as a, a spiritualist or mystic. Yeah. So those two terms that you're using mm-hmm. to describe Thurman, was that it sort of, were those ideas sort of prevalent at the time as people understood him? And was it a reason for, hey, you know, this guy is not interested in leading us in a social movement? Like, was there his detractors, were there critics of him sort of saying, labeling him a mystic or spiritualist, not interested in, you know, the social revolution that was taking place 
I mean, there were certainly people, which is why he wrote he wrote this book in 1965 called The Luminous Darkness. It's his only book that really deals with segregation head on. So, yeah, so Thurman was heavily criticized for not being in the streets. But Thurman was also a critic. You know, he didn't think that uh, that activists should be meeting in churches. He thought that the churches should be reserved for spiritual care Mm. (laughs) and and not necessarily for organizing in meetings. And so there were definitely some folk who, you know, just misunderstood his mission. And, and, and he, he also, they misunderstood his mission, but he also did not always agree with theirs. (laughs) That's Mm -hmm. the best way to say it. Sure. Uh Tell us a little bit about the relationship between Thurman and Martin Luther King, you know, obviously Thurman moved around from different HBCUs, mm-hmm. right? Morehouse, Spellman, Howard, and then eventually lands in Boston. But tell us a little bit about that relationship, where it begins, when it begins. Yeah. So basically Thurman, uh, Thurman would have known King, a little, little Mike, <laughs> all of his life because he he was at Morehouse the same time as Daddy King was there. Thurman, Sue Bailey Thurman and Alberta King were roommates in college. So so did not necessarily would have been introduced to, to him, but would have known him all of his life, right? right? But not try to like, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you know, Thurman was such, you know, a, a mentor to King. So not a mentor as in sitting down with him on a regular basis, but because of the black Baptist world knew each other. King's last year of coursework. Well, no, his, his last year at Boston would have been, was Thurman's first year. And so definitely there is some evidence to suggest that King attended chapel and listen to Thurman's sermons. And we know that he listened to Thurman's sermons because when he first gives his first major speech, the time of the Montgomery bus boycott, he quotes Thurman. One of his first phrases he says is we, the disinherited. And then Mm. also in his eulogy for the three little girls, there were four little girls killed on September 15th, 1963, but only three of those girls had a joint funeral. And in that eulogy, he quotes Thurman again. There's a line from Jesus in the Disinherited where Thurman says, life is as hard as crucible steel. And you hear that in in King's eulogy. So he definitely was reading him. By Thurman's own account, they did watch a baseball game together in 1953. I think Jackie Robinson and Roy Campanella was in some major league baseball game. And so Thurman did invite him over to the house. When when King was stabbed in New York, Thurman did go visit him in the hospital and say, "Hey, buddy, you need to slow down. You need <laughs> you need to take some care for for your spiritual life." But there was there was nothing to suggest that they were you know uh, that he sat at his feet on a regular basis, right? But he certainly influenced his certainly thought. Influenced I mean. him, and I you know I think you know. Thurman's Jesus and the Disinherited, you know, it was one of the first books, one of the first theological books of the 20th century or Christological books, meaning that it's a, about Jesus. 
that really looks at Jesus as a human being and looks at all of the human conditions that Jesus faced as a poor Jewish carpenter living in the Roman Empire. He was one of the first ones to, he doesn't go as as explicitly as a James Cone and say that, you know, Jesus is black, but he does say that Jesus understands blackness and the conditions of black because of his social condition in, you know, in the first century in the Roman Empire. Yeah, you see echoes of that, I think, in King's letter from Birmingham. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. So he's drawing on Thurman in a big way. I think one, maybe a major intellectual influence and a scholar right now, Drew Dellinger is writing about the ecological thought of Martin Luther King, Mm -hmm. which I think really one of the first people to, to, to do this. But I think you're suggesting that Again, this is probably one other strain of Thurman's thought that is also shaping Martin Luther King, thinking his concern for the environment, yeah. and nature, mm-hmm. reverence for nature mm-hmm. is tied to his spirituality. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's one area that can certainly be explored. Just looking at Black freedom struggle in this environmental, I mean, we, Black women, I would argue, I'm writing this essay about working class black women in their um, really how they advance environmental justice, that they really the architects of this notion. Yes. You know, so that's what I'm, you know, making me think about this black freedom struggle and environmental justice in the ideas of Thurman and King, but also women who would say are the architects to really Black women in particular. Yeah, yeah. I I would not disagree with you. (laughs) So tell me a little bit more about, let's go back for a minute to how Thurman and his his work at, uh, before we get to back to, anyway, Church for the Fellowship of All People, Mm -hmm. but his influence with students at Howard. Yeah. And the students who were there. You started to talk a little bit about the different students who were at Howard and how they began to implement nonviolent direct action. Mm -hmm. Tell us some more about his experience at Howard or his influence on these students. Thurman was the type of professor that he liked to prepare meals and have students over for dinner. (laughs) And he liked to just pose questions to them and, and get them to, to debate so he was very much into forming their critical and analytical skills. In terms of his influence on activists, what I don't have is what I don't have are conversations, you know, documented conversations. What I do have is if you read, really, if you read <laughs> any account from Murray, from Polly Murray, from James Farmer read through their interviews, you read through the SCLC, thinking of Wyatt T. Walker, Andrew Young, all of these men, even though they weren't at Howard, all of these men are going to talk about the influence on of Thurman on their thought. And so, right. and it's really, you know, because Thurman was such a prolific writer. I mean, he's off, he offered over 20 books these are the things that are sustaining student activists. These are the things that they are reading. So uh, recently, actually, in my recent work in collaboration in a project that you're working on with respect to women in Brown v. Board, just reading through Polly Murray's autobiography and you know some of the secondary sources, 
she cites Thurman as a mentor. And so I think his commitment to, to structuring his classes, to structuring the, the chapel space into one where, um, and I, I don't want to use derogatory language, but he, you know, as, as the maternal grandson of this formerly enslaved woman, I can't overstate Nancy Ambrose was his grandmother's name. I can't overstate her influence on him because she, she would often tell him that you were a child of God. And I think that message at the height of segregation, at the height of lynching in this country, Thurman's ability to communicate that sense of somebodyness and self-worth to people, particularly those who are activists, was his most important contribution to the students that he worked with. Because he's teaching, you know, he starts teaching, you know, mid-1920s, you know, through the 40s. And, you know, we don't have enough time and space to talk about all the things that were happening in this country. But, sure. <laughs> but the idea that you are somebody, you are not what these people are telling you you are. I think that's the most important message that he gave. Right. I think there's enough evidence, as you say, to suggest in terms of his writings, mm-hmm. okay, his papers and his actual influence on these students mm-hmm. to look at their work and make those connections between yeah. his thought, his ideas, and the pastoral care that he was offering yeah. to these students. Yeah. That there's enough evidence to make a claim about he's kind of spiritual father, intellectual father. Right. In many ways of a movement. Yeah. You know, it looks like that is can be well substantiated. Let's talk a little bit more about his development of the Church for the Fellowship of All People yeah. in San Francisco and then how he ends up in Boston. Okay. You know, what did he create? Why did he leave and end up in Boston? Okay. So we know that he, he has his experience in India and while he's there, he's thinking about, you know, how do I how do I test out this vision, this vision of using religion to break down social barriers? So he goes back to Howard and is teaching and is basically approached by Church for Fellowship of All People. I can't tell you the other co- the co-pastor's name right now. What I can mm-hmm. tell you is that the one black preacher that they had in mind for this experiment was a young Albert Clegg, who we know as the founder of the Shrine of the Black Madonna in Detroit, which was basically you know, a pro-Black, all-Black, Blackity-Black religious institution. <laughs> and, and Albert Clegg was like, nah, not, <laughs> not enough to score power with you white people. And so the white co-pastor reaches out to Thurman because he's at Howard, which we know is premier center of Black education, and says, hey, do you have a young pastor who can you know, take this post and take up this experiment with us. And it paid very little. And Thurman was like, well, how about I take it on? And this is someone who is, you know, 10-year track already, you know, in its professorate, doing well. And, but he sees this as an opportunity to really think about, can religion break down social barriers? And so he goes to the dean the president of Howard and says, look, I want to take this on. And they're like, well, you're not due for a sabbatical. And he's like, well, you know, it's okay. I just, you know, I can take the year off without pay. And they're like, you know, 
dude, you got your wife, you got your children, you have you financially support your mother. Like, how are you going to survive? And Thurman, and he admits, he says that it was rather pious, but he really believed. He said, you know, God will take care of us. So he goes out there to this church and they start to, I believe they were governed by, by the Presbyterian denomination. And so he gets out there and he basically has to decide, you know, well, they have to decide if they want to remain under the Presbyterian governance or if they want to be an independent church. They ultimately become an independent church. And then they want to start tackling these really major social issues together. You know, the the internment camps are, are there. So they're starting to think about, like, how do we, you know, bring some spiritual revolution to this city together? And they did so. <laughs> by by being an intentional community, by teaching one another's children about culture, about race, about community, uh, by teaching and embracing each other's approaches to the spirit, to God, to whatever one called God. And so they were very intentional about adopting one's spiritual lifestyles, if you will, and building community together. And Thurman was also very astute at getting different funders for this church, for their for their social programs and work, and getting to Boston. Edgar Brightman, who was renowned Boston scholar in the field of personalism, and I'll talk about that in a minute. He was on the national board of, of Church for the Fellowship of All People. And I think that's one of the linkages to to inviting Thurman to Boston. It's just that he had at that point by 1953, he's 52, 53 years old himself. And he has this very impressive resume of not only being at Morehouse and Spelman and Howard, he has this international profile with, with Gandhi. And then, you know, the, with fellowship for church of all people being the first, you know, interracial, intercultural, interfaith institution of its kind, I think it made proper sense for for BU to tap into someone like Thurman. Because another thing that's happening at Boston at that time, and we know because MLK was there, is that there's this uptick and there's an uptick in black enrollment Mm -hmm. as well. And I think a real desire to bring the creativity, that's a word that I haven't used yet, but I think it's so Thurman was a spiritual genius and a spiritual creative. And so to bring that level of creativity and also, again, he's writing nonstop. And so to bring someone with his with his spiritual insight and theological approach, I think was just uh, it was very smart (laughs) on Boston's part. Sure. And I just interviewed Zed Molesky about his book before busing in mm-hmm. in that book he's making the argument mm-hmm. of the origins of the black freedom struggle in Boston you know the book that just came out about a year ago and it makes sense right to bring him into Boston right for so for those reasons but there's all already a budding freedom struggle mm-hmm. that's emerging in the city and like you said another factor the rise of black students and at the particular university makes sense. And then we can place Martin Luther King there around the same time, mm-hmm. being influenced by Thurman and then returning once again to the South after he finishes his degrees. Mm-hmm. 
But as we start to wrap things up here, what would you say is the lasting impact on that Thurman has not only on King, but, but on a black freedom struggle yeah. overall? Well, you know, I do want to point out that Thurman outlived King by at least 15 years. And so I think what he gave to King was this idea that God was on the side of the oppressed because God's son, Jesus of Nazareth, was oppressed. And that, so that, that's very clear. I also think that even though Thurman was not, did not define himself as a personalist, King did. And that's basically the idea that God sees personal value in each human and living being, that there is a sense of worth and somebodiness. That's very clear in King's pro- overall project. And you look at all of his campaigns, those are, you know, you can hear those in his speeches. And I know that Thurman, you know, is intellectual, spiritual influence there. Mm-hmm. I think what Thurman, and I think that that may be. That may be one of Thurman's overall contributions to our lives is thinking about even those of us who may not believe in a higher power. I think that we could all say that human life is valuable sure, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and it's to be protected and respected. I think that Thurman gives us ideas about equality and freedom and even democracy um i won't i won't profess to be a an expert on all things related to the church but you know churches are little governments <laughs> and mm-hmm. and i do know that thurman was very democratic in his in his leadership of the church in terms of empowering the people to have a voice in church governance and so i think that he left behind a lot of great ideas about these over these these major ideas that inform the US what it means to be free what it means to be just what it means to be equal what it means to be fair and and if you look in Thurman's catalog of writings there's something there on each one of those topics sure like you say he was so prolific which begs the question given the fact that he lives much longer than king leaves this body of work mm-hmm yet gets overshadowed by King, who had a much shorter life. Right. And although King was a prolific speech giver and writer, yeah. too, it's, it's far more in terms of the voluminous work that Thurman produced. Like, how could scholars miss, miss that, right? Yeah, but I think we miss it because we misunderstand what it is to be an activist, which is why, if you recall mm. a little bit ago, I said, I like to talk about the church women who funded the movement. Because we don't know all of their names, but they were there. And the same thing with like, you know, men of Thurman's generation. We don't talk enough about Benjamin Mays, about Vernon Johns. We we tend to history, I think, likes to talk about young people who were in the streets. But we don't realize that we also need to talk about these people who were building institutions, ministrating institutions in which these young people, you know, they they learn, they work. And so. Uh, and Thurman plays a role in that because uh, a lot of people will say that Thurman was a civil rights leader. He was not. Mm. <laughs> he was not. He was not, at least as we understand it, he was not out in the street. He was not marching. He was not integrating anything, but he was providing this spiritual blueprint for how to live a life of dignity and respect. 
And that is also important work. And it's work that I think that now we're starting to turn to, to understand the past is, is to understand those people who were trying to give us a roadmap undergird the work that we do. Yeah, I think that's so well said. And and uh, what's next for you? I want yeah. to sort of end on that note. Tell us now that you've kind of yeah. <laughs> left academia, at least temporarily. Temporarily <laughs> taking a pause from academia. I want to write, Hetty. I want to be able to write without having to worry about committee meetings. And so I will get some, I will finally turn my dissertation into a book and get some other creative writing done. I will, through my spiritual direction practice, because obviously there, I think that there's a link between history and spirituality. I'll be developing some online courses called, one course in particular I'll highlight here is called the Great Ancestors course, where we can talk about people like Howard Thurman and Fannie Lou Hamer and others, Maya Angelou, and talk about their lives. So I'll be developing some courses around that. Thinking about starting a podcast myself, I'm still playing around with the title, but essentially I want to make sure that we are talking about historical topics in the best way possible, that we are using evidence to talk about why Black history matters, why statues matter or don't matter. Just to kind of undergird political discourse, to have a podcast out there that deals with historical subjects with people with PhDs. And no, not to, for those of us who go on Wikipedia and YouTube, but people who have actually done the work and can speak to these matters with education and with caution, but with truthfulness. Sure, we need more of that definitely in this space. Today, I want to thank you so much for joining me, Black in Boston and beyond. <laughs> 